Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty good, Richie. What's going on? Man, this weekend, I was able to get a game that's been sitting on my shelf for the past six weeks, and the game is called Captain Sonar. Oh, what's that, what's that one about? So this game is a technically a board game, but it's really played on uh, dry erase sheets, essentially. So there's okay. uh, two teams, and each are on a sub, and those subs are really... A trying to kill one another, right? They're trying to th- shoot torpedoes and, and blow each other out of the water. Well, they don't know where each other are, and they're trying to find out. And this game is played in real time. So you have uh, a captain, a radio guy, a first officer, and an engineer, and they're all working together to move the sub and to fire torpedoes and to launch sonar and try to figure out where the other team is, and the other team can hear what you're saying. And you can hear what the other team is saying. So it gets really intense when they have figured out where you are and you don't know where they are. And um, everyone's going back and forth and the captain's shooting commands and the engineer's saying you can't do that and because the system's down. And it was just a lot of fun. I think the, the big problem is that you probably need six or more players, preferably eight, to play it. But I don't think I've had that much fun with just sheets and just a dry erase marker. It was so intense and so much fun. I highly recommend Captain Sonar. You know, with the amount of board games you and your family play, I'd really love to see you like Periscope a, a, a session, like a gaming session when you guys are like just going at it with the whiteboards and the, the, the characters and the pieces. Like, I think that'll be pretty interesting. That would be interesting. I... I I don't know how many people would actually want to watch that, but I'm I'm in gum game to try it. Hey man, if people could sit down and watch other people play Final Fantasy and all these other games, like I'm pretty sure they'll watch a play board game. <laughs> so what you been up to? Well, so for our listeners that are in the United States, it's tax season. It's getting close to tax season. And so one of the things that I've been doing actually, and particularly now since I'm independent, is you know, I'm having to track everything. And so I downloaded this app the other day called Mile IQ. And essentially what it does is it tracks all of my driving miles, right? So I, I could categorize stuff. I could say this is a personal drive. This is a business drive. You know what I mean? It'll create little reports for me. And you know, it's really helped me over the past couple of months just, you know, try and figure out like where, where my time is going on the road, you know? Um, really cool app. It's free. At least 40, you get 40, um, 40 trips a month for free which I, I generally don't need more than 40 trips a month. So, so that, that works out pretty well, at least for 40 business trips, that is. And um, yeah, it works out pretty well, dude. You know, so right now all I need to do is, you know, I have this report, I'll put it in with all my other tax paperwork and um, yeah, I'm ready to go. Cool, man. Sounds like that's going to save you a bunch of time. Yeah, it's saving me a bunch of time. And, you know, maybe we'll see, uh, you know, if I'll get some extra returns back from it too. We'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed. Crossing, man. Crossed up. So we have another event coming up, huh? Or a couple events, I should say. Yes, we have a few things that are going to be happening um, in the near future. So first off, next week, if you're in South Florida, 
on February 16th, me and a bunch of a bunch of the other guys in the community, Joe Rayo, Will Chartak, Jonas, um, you know, we're all going to be doing this thing called Decode C Sharp slash .NET. And it's in partnership with LaunchCode. And pretty much it's like a it's like an info session for the community. You know, what is .NET? What can I do with it? You know, what can I build with it? You know, and we're going to be answering some of those types of questions. We're going to be talking about web and mobile. We're going to be talking about the cloud. Um, not from a technical perspective, but more so like how can your business benefit from it? Or if you're a student, how can I learn it? And what's the job opportunities available for it? So if you're around, definitely come check it out. It's going to be a cool event. Again, very light on the, te the technology um, or the, the really deep technical details and more so high on the value of the technology, so to speak. You know, there'll be tons of opportunity for questions and answers. There's going to be some very light refreshments. So, you know, just come over and hang out. It'll be pretty cool. And then on March 11th, and I think we mentioned this one before, we're having the South Florida Code Camp, and that's going to be at Nova. Free event, tons of people. I finally submitted my talk, so <laughs> I still we'll, see if it, <laughs> we'll see if it gets accepted or not, but at least I'm submitted for next month. So um, so there you have it, man. Yeah. You submit yours, dude. I do. Uh, South Florida Code Camp is a tradition here in South Florida. I call it our Super Bowl and technology calendar. I love it to death and uh, can't wait for it to come. It's, it's amazing. I love it. Yes, sir. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Charles Maxwood. So Charles is a podcaster, speaker, and he's the CEO of, Det of devchat.tv. He hosts the Ruby Rogues, JavaScript Java, and Adventures in Angular podcasts. He also puts on a large number of online conferences about various topics of interest to computer programmers. When he's not coding or podcasting, he's reading to his kids, watching soccer, or finding new ways to automate parts of his business. He currently lives in Utah with his wife and five kids. This episode was recorded on December 27th, 2016, and now our conversation with Charles Maxwood. And now, away from the keyboards feature conversation. So for today's show, we have another very special guest. We have Mr. Charles Maxwood. So Charles, thank you for, for coming on the show, man. How you been? Doing well. You know, we have a lot of listeners, some of them technical, some of them not so technical. Just before we get started and really start digging into, you know, your, your background and, you know, some of the things that you're working on, why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and, you know, what are some of the things that you do? So I think most people will know me from the podcasts that I produce. I am the co-host on the Ruby Rogues podcast, the JavaScript Jabber podcast, and the Adventures in Angular podcast. And until recently, I was also co-host on the iFreaks show, which is about iOS development, and the Freelancer show, which is about freelancing. And then I also have a number of online conferences that I put on uh, every year. So this year, uh, in like three weeks, we have DevOps Remote Conf coming up. Um, it's all online, no travel involved. You just buy a ticket, come listen to awesome people. JS Remote Conf is going to be in March. Freelance Remote Conf will be in May. I think Ruby Remote Conf is in June, and so on and so on. So I also have conferences for new programmers, Angular, React, Rails. But yeah, that's that's generally what people know me for. I'm also writing a book for new programmers on how to find a job. Wow, that's crazy, man. So you have all this stuff going on, right? You got these remote conferences. Again, you have these podcasts that you do. You know, mm -hmm. and obviously they're all around that technical space, right? That software development type space. 
So could you tell me where exactly it is that you, you got your start in programming and technology? So programming, let's see. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Way, way, way back in I know, the day. Right. Um, I think I bought a TI calculator when I was like 13. And I was, I would just program it with formulas to do my homework. I mean, it was pretty simple stuff. Um, but then I could just, you know, tell it what the numbers were and it would tell me what the answers were. Um, I was also in the math club uh, when I was uh, 14 and 15. And we did a bunch of Pascal programming, uh, again, around math. Um, in high school, I was much more into the electronics scene. Um, so we did everything from building basic circuitry that did, you know, make lights blink and, you know, use timers and stuff like that. All the way up to one project, we made a robot that had light sensors on the bottom that would essentially follow a line across the floor. So we would just tape electrical tape down and turn it on and it would follow the line. Uh, we also did some assembly code uh, programming on 8088s. Um, that was essentially uh, just turning lights on and off. And we actually keyed in the, the byte codes by hand. So your assembler code, you usually see like a command and then like a register number and another register number and maybe where to store it. Okay. And we would key that all in by hand. So the jump command has a number on it. And we would actually feed that in to the pins on the 8088 chip by hand and walk it through each instruction. <laughs> I don't know why we had to do that, but nice. But yeah. So then uh, in college, I was a computer engineering major. Um, I also got into IT at that point. I uh, worked in IT all the way through college. So, you know, the six years I spent getting my four-year degree. <laughs> that happens to all of us, man. Trust me. Yep. And then I got hired out of college, um, ran a technical customer support department for about a year, year and a half, and discovered I loved programming, which I didn't discover in college despite my best efforts. So um, so I got into programming at that point. That was about 10 years ago, got into Ruby on Rails. And yeah, that all led to a whole bunch of other stuff that we're probably going to talk about. Wow. So it sounds like you, you have a pretty solid background, right? Like you've, you've played with a little bit of hardware, you've played with a little bit of software. What, what about software exactly that kind of made you lean more towards that side of the world? So it's funny, when I went to college, I was actually an electrical engineering major. So I was all about the hardware. And as things kind of went on, I mean, we did things with state machines, which is kind of the closest thing you get, I guess, to hardware programming. I guess we did play with some uh, programmable, pro programmable logic gates and, uh, you know, did some stuff with that. Um, so you get the logic gates and yeah, so there's, there's a little bit of sort of technical programming know-how there to get the outcome that you want. But yeah, I mean the, the software I did in college was mostly the exercises we had to do for the basic programming classes. I took an operating system class and so we actually had to do things like write the paging algorithm for, uh, an operating system. So yeah. And, uh, that sounds interesting. It was really interesting, um, you know, and so you have to figure out which ones are most or least recently used and page those out. And then like to get extra credit, you had to get it down so that your memory space was two pages large. And so it would have to page every time it tried to execute anything. Um, and if your paging algorithm didn't work right, then your program would hang. So, <laughs> right. you know, just things like that. It was, it was uh, kind of interesting and, but it all felt like a game. It all felt so contrived. I mean, you're never going to have a two page memory space or anything. So 
um, I, I just I didn't take it very seriously. So I thought, okay, well, I switched my major to computer engineering because the chip design and uh, all of that stuff, you know, we did a whole bunch of VLSI, which is um, a specification language for computer chips um, to actually design the hardware and tell it how it's supposed to uh, behave. Right. And uh, that was fun. And so I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but it wasn't until I graduated from college from BYU and I went and worked for a company called Mosey uh, that I really kind of got into programming. And what happened there was that there were two of us working the technical customer support. So we would we just did email support when I was hired. There were about 10 people in the company and two of us were answering emails. Mosey is the, um, the company that did um, backups, right? Is backup yep, software? online backups. Like? Yep, okay. that was us. So I was there for about four months, and then um, we were featured in the Wall Street Journal by Walt Mossberg, who was the uh, consumer software guru guy. And all of a sudden, we had people coming out of the woodwork signing up for Mosey. And they, our, our support load went way, way, way up to the point where we couldn't really keep up by opening Thunderbird, checking with the other guy to make sure he wasn't already answering the email that I had just opened, <laughs> and then uh, replying using an email client. And so uh, the company at the time was using Ruby on Rails to do all of their web application stuff. And so we just adopted it and we wrote a program that would go out to the email server, pull the emails into a database, and then it set up a mutex, which just basically locks it for one, for one user to edit at a time, uh, would lock the email. And so um, if I got into the system and started answering emails, it would just skip the locked emails. And so if Tom, the other guy, was working on an email, I wouldn't even see it. Um, and that, that started working pretty well. We also got to the point where we would get an email, it would load the whole email, including all of the back threads, so we could you know, not repeat what we had told people. And um, as soon as we submitted an answer, it would just pull the next one up. So there was no phishing through... Uh, Thunderbird either. So we got way more efficient by doing a little bit of programming work. And that's what really hooked me was when we started finding new and interesting ways to use programming to speed up our job. We, we added canned responses for the most common problems. You know, so people would get connection errors and we just say, hey, we'll try it again. And then if it still doesn't work, then there's probably something else wrong. But a lot of people, the connection errors would come up once, they try it again, it worked fine, and they'd never have to get back to us. Or, and that was a pretty common thing. So just by having those, again, I mean, it was a matter of trying to get as many emails answered at a time as possible so that we didn't fall behind on our load because we like to get back to people within one business day. That's pretty interesting. So it sounds like you pretty much created your own ticketing system on top of email, right? Using Ruby. Yeah, yeah that's eventually where we wound up. And it was funny too because um, at, at one point we actually went to our boss, the CEO, and said, hey, we'd like some software that, you know, this will all feed into that we can use as a ticketing system. And he told us no. Um, I guess there was a, a concern over expenditures and the amount that it would cost for a system like that just didn't make sense. But sure. they were willing to pay us for our time to do it. I, I don't know. But yeah, that's what we wound up building. So it was a ticketing system. It also eventually hooked into Asterisk, uh, which is the uh, VoIP system, the open source, source VoIP system. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Right, right, right. It backs up onto MySQL. And okay. so when we added phone support and then hired more uh, support personnel, 
it would track call times and locations and repeat calls and all that stuff. Oh, nice. That's very cool. So yeah, that's, that's where I got into programming. That's where it kind of became this, aha, this is really cool because it can do, it can solve interesting problems. It's not just, oh, this is my AI class and I'm going to tell the tank to go around the wall the other way. And was that your first like dive into Ruby at that point where you started to yes. build these things for your company? Yep. And so what was, what was the experience like for you? Just, just learning, just ramping up? Like, was it very much of a, you know, kind of trial and error kind of thing? Or did you, I don't know, did they give you like books and videos and did you have time to sit down and, you know, absorb a lot of information before you actually got started? Like how did that, how did that process go for you? Uh, no, not really. We had, we had some support from the engineers uh, that worked at the company that worked in Rails day in and day out when we had questions. Um, when I was working at BYU in my spare time, because at one point I was on a team that just set up new servers, and we, especially during the summer when things were slow, we had time to kill. They wanted us around in case something went wrong, but other than that, we just, you know. So one of my coworkers got me into uh, LAMP stack programming, so MySQL, PHP, and Ruby, Rails, Views, aren't that different from just inserting PHP tags in there. There's a little more to it because you have the models and controllers to back up your views. Um, whereas PHP, you do a lot of the programming, or at least the way that I had learned at that point was to put a lot of the programming directly into your, your HTML. And so, yeah, so figuring out, okay, I've got these models and the controller kind of sets up all of the access to the models that I'm pulling out of the database. And then you just drop the values into the view and then, you know, all of the systems for updating data and things like that, in entering data, it wasn't that much of a stretch. And I had done plenty of programming in college to the point where I knew at least some of the basics of coding a system. So really, it was just learning architecture from the Rails point of view. And at that point, Rails was fairly simple. And so it didn't take a whole lot to figure out the Rails way of building something. Right, right, right. And, you know, I've always heard a lot about the Ruby community and how supportive they are of new developers and, and that type of stuff. And was that your experience too? Like when you needed questions answered or help or support, like was that easy for you to go out and, and find? Yeah, absolutely. Both from the standpoint of like going on the internet and asking questions. I mean, this was before Stack Overflow or anything, but, you know, they had mailing lists and that's what I did. I just joined a mailing list and then if I had a question, I'd ask it. Um, right. there was also a users group locally that I could go to and they also had a Google group. So I would get on there and ask my questions there as well. And then within the company, unless we were under a major crunch, the programmers of the company would also help out some. Nice. Like when I, the reason I ask is cause I always find one of the best things that developers could get, particularly new developers that are getting into a new language or framework or anything like that is to find like a support system or a group of people that could really, you know, help answer your questions, you know, help clarify any doubts you might have. You know, I think having somebody to kind of guide you and mentor you through the process is, is almost like a, it's almost like a necessity, right? It's like, you know, that's kind of where, you know, your, your success kind of lies to, to a certain degree, because like, how do you know whether you're doing the right thing or not? Like, how do you know that you're following the right conventions or, you know, like, I think it's important for us to kind of, you know, both teach and be taught, right? Like there needs to be like a little mm -hmm. bit of a symbiotic relationship. That's definitely true. The other thing that it also helps with is that usually the people in the users groups know where the best jobs are. Ah, so, see, there you go. 
if you if you wind up looking for a job, um, my first full time programming job didn't come out of that, but the other two did, nice. and then I went freelance, and a lot of that came out of community in one way or another as well. So really, yeah. so so what made you decide to become a freelancer? <laughs> well, it was kind of a combination of things. Um, one of the one of the things was that I got laid off from my last full time job, um, but you know I could have just gone out and gotten another job. The, the trick there was that my previous job I had fled from. I was, I was really tired of it. I hadn't gotten along. I mean, we, I got along with my boss, but at the same time, uh, the way he operated was very uh, dominating. Mm. And the other issue there was essentially that um, he stifled any kind of in- innovation that he didn't like. And so, you know, a few of us were looking at, uh, you know, doing a side business and he quashed that and he, um, he would get frustrated over things that were really outside of our control. Um, and yeah, eventually he started demanding that we work more hours and things like that. And so anyway, um, and I was starting to get depressed and I, I started looking at why and it was like, well, I have to deal with him every day. Like I realized I was dreading, dreading every time I had to go walk into his office and it wasn't because he was abusive, at least um, in obvious ways, but he very much expected things to go the way that he wanted them to go. And he wouldn't take any input as far as whether or not that was actually a reasonable expectation. Well, that doesn't sound realistic, does it? Yeah. So uh, that worked out to the point where I just I went and got another job. And that was actually the best job I had, that last one that I had. Um, the two jobs preceding that... Um, Basically, the, the one job was a full-time job, um, and I was working for an agency that did mostly .NET and um, Java and Flash, but they did have one client or two clients that did Ruby on Rails, so I worked for them until their client uh, basically backed out for financial reasons, and they just came in and laid me off because I was really junior. I had been with them for a year at that point, oh. um, so I went and got that other job. Like I said, I worked for them for a year I guess it was just the three and then Mosey. But anyway, um, Mosey got acquired by EMC Corporation, which is now owned by Dell. Um, and the whole company changed, and I just wasn't super happy there. So I, I'm, I went to Solution Stream. I really liked Solution Stream until they laid me off. And then I was at uh, this other company that I'm not going to name um, that I really hated. And then I went to Public Engines, CrimeReports.com. And I worked there for six months, and I really loved it. And then they laid me off. So it seemed like the only jobs that wanted me to stick around were the jobs that I wasn't happy in. <laughs> and so um, at the same time, I had been looking at some other options because uh, by that point, my son was in kindergarten, and I was thinking, I want to be able to make it to all of his school functions, and I want to you know, be around as dad. No, for sure. That's, that's very important. And so I had been looking at starting my own business, and then I got laid off, and I got a severance check and we had just earned a big bonus by doing a bunch of extra work. And so I had about a month, month and a half's worth of money in the bank. And so I looked at my wife and I said, wife, I want to go freelance. And my wife freaked. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, that's why, that's why I went freelance is because I wanted the freedom. I wanted to be able to basically tell my boss or my clients or whoever, Hey, look, um, Friday at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm not going to be here because my son is doing something at the school. Right. And so, yeah. And, and it's worked out mostly that way. You know, I think that's, that's an interesting 
topic, right? Like, like how do you tell your significant other, hey, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and kind of start my own company and do my own thing, right? Because, uh-huh. you know, I, I had to do something very similar <laughs> earlier this year. And the looks and the way that the eyes widen, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just like, you want to do what? <laughs> you know, where the money's going to come from? Like, how long mm-hmm. are you going to take to my clients? Like, you know, it's, and it's understandable, right? It's it's understandable because, particularly to if you're the, you know, the main breadwinner, you know, yep. um, there's obvious, there's a legitimate concern about what's going to happen to us, like us as a family, you know what I mean? So. Can I, can you tell me like what was that conversation like for you? I mean, obviously not in terms of financially speaking, but in terms of really just trying to comfort your family about hey, you know, just give, give, put a little faith in me, and you know, I'm going to make this happen for us. Well, it's it was really funny because she, like I said, she totally freaked out. Um, she just you know, and and I t- I get it right because I had been working these other jobs and I got a paycheck every two weeks. And it was just, you know, it was normal. It was reliable. And all of a sudden it's like, well, what if you can't find a client or what if the client doesn't pay you? Right. Um, how do we deal with that kind of a thing? And I said, look, I said, I think I can make this work. I'm pretty sure that I can, uh, pay all the bills. And what really did it was we had that month and a half's worth of money. And so I just looked at her and I said, look, I said, I'm not going to take a full-time job unless we're out of money or unless it, I really feel like it's a job that I'm just going to absolutely love. And she was okay with that. So okay. I had a month and a half essentially to make freelancing work. Because right. um, when the money was gone, then my freelancing career was gone too. So right. that, so that was a deadline. You had a deadline, you had yep. you know, very clear understanding of expectation is after this period of time, if things don't change or if yep. things don't go the way that you want them to go, then there's a plan B. Yep. But the other part of the agreement was was that if I found enough freelance work to say extend that month and a half's worth of money to three months, then I could continue to freelance for three months. It was when it was when we ran out of money right. that I, I had to go back and get a job. Right. And gotcha. so, um, what wound up happening was, um, we wound up not running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome. So, so yeah, so that, that, you know, and my first, my first client, it was funny. Um, I thought they were actually hiring. So I went in for a job interview and then they said, no, we're looking for a contractor for this one project. And so they asked me what my, what, my salary bid was, and I bid 60 bucks an hour. And if you know anything about rails, uh, rates, even back in 2000, when was that? 2009. I mean, that was exceptionally low. So that, of course they hired me on the spot because <laughs> <laughs> yes, I underbid everybody by at least half. Right. Um, you know, but that got us to the three months and then I had another contractor to come in and that that's what made it for us. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Could you tell us what your your first contracting job was like? Like, how was that different for you versus, you know, your full-time experiences that you've had? Uh, in a lot of ways, it wasn't that different. Uh, the main difference was that I had to provide my own equipment. Um, oh, really? I've never heard fly- about that before. Yeah, so the difference between a W-2 full- or full-time employee versus um, a contractor, there are a few differences, but... 
if you if you do too many things for them, then the IRS will come back and reclassify them as an employee. And then what happens is they slap you for all of the back like FICA tax and Medicare tax, right. and they will also slap you for the penalty <laughs> on those taxes if you're late, and they'll slap you for a penalty for basically trying to skirt the rules. Oh, so cool. um, one of those things is providing your own equipment. Right. Uh, one of the other things is is if you have them work on premises, you tell them when to show up and when they can leave. Um, those are kind of the big ones. There are a few other niggly little things. And if you do enough of those, then they'll get your form as well. But for the most part, that's what it is. Okay. So if you're, if you're basically controlling the way that they work, um, by providing the equipment or telling them when to come and go and where to come and go, then they'll reclassify them as an employee. So I was working on my own laptop. Um, they did want me on premises at least half the time, but, um, uh, unless there was a meeting, they didn't tell me when that was. I just had to show up for half the day between eight and five. Right. Okay. And uh, anyway, so that all worked out. So yeah, I would just drive over to their office, which was about 10, 15 minutes from where I lived. And uh, that, you know, and I just worked with their programmers over there and made it, you know, I just made it go. Um, and that was only for a few months. That's the other thing is if you have somebody working for you, um, you know, under, the, the, anyway, the length of time that you have a contractor working for you also factors into whether or not they start looking at it and trying to figure out if you've got an employee or a contractor. Right. But I was only there for three or four months before I had another contract lined up. So, so the contracting thing worked out. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm happy to hear that. How did, um, how did your podcasting journey start? <laughs> okay, so uh, to get to that, uh, rewind a little bit back to Mosey. Okay. So uh, I ran tech support for them, like I said, for like a year, year and a half. And then the company got acquired and the political situation changed. Um, The other support guy wound up going over to sales and being kind of their technical expert. And so I wound up being the system expert for the rest of the company, which you, you may think is interesting because we had the programmers, right, that were experts in the areas that they worked in. But nobody was an expert in the entire system except for support. And since I was the most senior support staffer, um, and then I was actually managing the support department at one point, um, I was the person with the technical knowledge that could solve things. And so when uh, Mosey moved to corporate, for example, and started providing corporate licenses to companies like General Electric, um, I was the primary contact for General Electric. Um, you know, well, I was the primary contract contact when they had a problem with Mosey at General Electric. And so I would help them solve their problems. Otherwise they talk to their account manager. Um, but it was things like that. So anyway, um, when the political climate changed, um, one of the things that happened was the CEO was pulled over to kind of business development for EMC because they liked the way he thought there and they put the COO in charge. And he decided that he needed to consolidate power, and that meant that he needed to consolidate everybody coming to him for everything, and not me when they had a technical problem. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah, you kind of see where this is going. So he found, he he went in and he essentially shunted me off to the side and said that I was more or less the technical resource for the technical support. And he put 
somebody else in charge of the actual support department managing the personnel and everything else. And then he just wanted me to code against the uh, support the ticket. ticketing system in the meantime. But he didn't really even want me doing that because that put me in a position of too much power. But at the same time, I still had people coming to me because if they needed a problem solved, I was the one that would solve it for them. Right. So eventually I got tired of kind of being pushed into, you know, various positions that I, you know, was or wasn't necessarily interested in. So I went to him and I said, look, I really just want to be a programmer, which would have solved his problem actually, because I would have just been over in programmer land and nobody would have bugged me. Um, but the programmers were kind of the elites in the company and he knew that I couldn't pass one of their technical interviews. So he recommended that I move over to QA. So I moved over to QA. This is a long way of saying I went to QA. I should have just said that in the beginning. But I wound up in QA and I wound up working with a guy named Don. And Don was kind of a funny guy, but he bought one of these. This was back in like 2006. He bought one of these brand new things called an iPod. And he'd sit over there. They used to play music or something like that, right? Yeah, right. And it had the little wheel control on it. It had an actual hard drive in it. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, he'd sit over at his desk, we shared an office, and he'd just be cracking up. So finally, I, I turned around and I said, Don, what are you listening to? Because I thought, you know, he's listening to some comedian. Well, he was listening to podcasts. And I was like, that's really cool. And he's like, yeah, they have podcasts for everything. And I said, but I can't afford an iPod. He said, you don't need an iPod, you just install iTunes on your computer. And while I was in QA, I was running the Mac beta, so I had a Mac with iTunes on it. And so I started downloading podcasts and I started listening to one podcast in particular called Rails Envy, which was run by Greg Pollock. Um, you might've heard of him. He's done a few other things like start a company called Code School. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about him. Yeah. So um, anyway, he and Jason Cypher were running this podcast and I listened to it and they, they were hilarious, but they would also share um, Ruby news every week and Rails news every week. Right. And, and so uh, finally I was like, ah, I kind of want to start a podcast. And so I emailed Greg and I said, Greg, um, you know, I'm a new rails developer. I don't have a ton of experience. I don't know anybody. And I thought he was like this, you know, personality. Cause I put podcasters up with like TV stars and movie stars. And so when I emailed him, I didn't expect an email back. Like I got an email back the next day. You should totally start a podcast. And so, um, wait a minute. We ta- you mean we're, we're not movie stars. I don't understand this. I know, right? <laughs> if you wind up making a million dollars on a contract, I want to know how you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so does Cecil. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yes, don't keep it a secret. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, so what wound up happening was, yeah, he emailed me back. We talked about formats and I started kind of this weird hybrid show where I would interview people every week when I could. And I do a solo show about something that I learned about programming on the weeks that I didn't have anybody. Hmm. And I called it Rails Coach. So my first episode, I talked about something with Rails. The second episode, I interviewed Greg. Because, you know, I was like, well, do you, can I interview you? He's like, sure. You know what I love about that is the fact that you start the show and now, you know, you, you find the people or the person that, that inspired you or was really interesting to you and you get them on the show. And now you have a dialogue with that person. Yeah, my second guest was somebody that I had seen speak at a conference, at at, the Mountain West Ruby conference. I thought he was cool. All the local guys were all at Twitter about, excited about him. 
Um, and so I got James Edward Gray on the show. Um, if you don't know who he is, just wait until I start talking about Ruby Rogues because he is the person that I eventually got together with to start that show. Hmm. Okay. And so it, it plays in, I think, episode 50 of that show. I got David Heinemeyer Hansen, who created Ruby on Rails. Um, I wound up having a fully expenses paid trip to ApacheCon in 2011. And I got to interview a lot of their project managers and developers. You know, so just a lot of cool stuff. I wound up interviewing a bunch of people at RailsConf and RubyConf. Um, I actually had a company pay for me to go to RailsConf or RubyConf one year. You know, so so it kind of worked out that way. But yeah, it was it was kind of funny. It also led to me getting into screencasting full time. Oh, very cool. A friend of mine, Eric Berry, started a, sh- a show called Teach Me to Code. And he was recording videos for Ruby on Rails developers. And he needed some content made. And so he came to all of us in the local community and said, hey, I need videos made. Um, So I did one on routing in Ruby on Rails. A bunch of other folks contributed a bunch of videos. And then once I started the podcast, he had moved on and he was more interested in Groovy and Grails, which is just another programming language and paradigm. Uh, Grails is based on Rails, but uh, Groovy runs on the Java virtual machine and right. uh, is kind of a different ecosystem over there. So um, he realized, though, that his audience was still firmly rooted in Ruby. And so he came to me because I was already constantly or consistently producing content and asked me to take over Teach Me to Code. So I took that over as well. Um, that was around the same time I started Rails Coach. Yeah, so I had both of those things going when I got laid off. And I would say that that probably helped me quite a bit in finding freelance clients. In fact, I had people call me up about episodes of the Rails Coach podcast and say, hey, I listened to this. I'm trying to build this on my own. I can't do it. Can I hire you? Or teach me to code videos. Um, Eric actually did a series on how to build a Twitter clone. And this was back in like 2007, 2008. And uh, I got at least two contracts off of that from people who watched the videos. And then my phone number was prominently listed there saying, hire me. And so they called up and they said, yeah, I've been trying to learn Ruby on Rails. I can't do it. I saw your video. Clearly, you can. And then they hired me. So you're getting contracts and you're meeting people and you're traveling. Like, Could you even imagine that starting a podcast would even open up these type of doors for you? Like, that's crazy, right? No, I just wanted to talk to people about Rails. Right. <laughs> and I wanted to go a little bit beyond local community. I mean, that's all it was. I just like talking about Rails and I thought, oh, cool. Well, I can talk to people about Rails and I can publish it. Oh, we got that stuff to do. So let's do this real quick. And yes, sir. Let's do it. You done? So we're just so doing the key- outro, right? Yeah, the see outro. And, you know, yeah. um, I, I just have next and wait for keyboards, a two-part conversation with Charles Maxwell. is part two of our conversation with Charles Maxwell. And part two yep. is essentially going over all how he does all his podcasting stuff. So Podcasting the conferences. Yeah, so so the convo was all cut. I've just not to put it into the the show and the template and do all that stuff. What if I don't have an action shot? Um, Just take the picture from his um, his footer and put it in there. Okay, that may not be big enough, but okay. Well, um, I mean, if you if if it's not big enough on the um, on the email, just go to his website because it's on his website too. Okay. Let me see. I will. Uh, I will see what I can do. Yeah. And we're gonna need another one for next week, so we could go and change it. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, for sure. Charles Max. You know, we could take just like... We'd like to thank Charles for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have part two of our conversation with Charles Maxwood. Learn how he does his podcast. It is amazing. This stuff is gold, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, make sure you come back in next week to check it out. See you. Peace. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego! You know, I did binge listen uh, the OA on um, Netflix. Um, it was a bad. It get it gets better closer to the end. The beginning's very slow. The, the you know what I I dug the beginning yeah. and mainly because it's like they just throw you in here and you have no idea what's going on, and then what almost toward the end of the first episode, then the title comes on. Yeah, it's like. Oh, well, that's really cool. Yeah. You know, it's like we were watching this prelude and, you know, kind of introducing the characters and where they're at and all this stuff. And you're trying to figure out this blind girl who could see and all this other stuff. And there was a lot of interest. And I, I saw an interview or listened because I don't really watch anything anymore. It's all in the background while I'm trying to figure out why VPCs sucks. Um, it, it, and the... Uh, creator who was the played the lead character she said that we really wanted to do a show that was kind of uh, didn't stick to one genre so it was genre bending so hello hello yeah hold on the cat can't take the hint that he can't sit on my desk because then he sits on my mic cable and and gets popped out 
so but they wanted to because they, they started off as a coming of age and then they went to sci-fi and then they went you know and then they went to more a psychological thriller and they wanted to do that genre hopping type thing um which i get and i think it worked mostly but i think there's some things there that just that, that didn't work as well i kind of got bored halfway through and they were all trapped and it's kind of it's not where i kind of thought the series was going right. to go and it was like yeah i'm not thrilled with it but overall i guess it wasn't too bad yeah i the, the ending was great i i i dug the ending yeah the ending was cool um it's it's one of those it leaves you being like okay well where's the rest right like let me know what's happening now kind of thing you know let me yeah. find out about the rest of the story 